The path of flourishing and the path of spiritual prosperity lies in us recognizing these roles that God has given us as as men and women. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. I'm not sure how many of you were raised Southern Baptist. I know that you all were not. You didn't grow up in a Southern Baptist church, and it may be possible that uh, you are unclear or maybe don't even have a a basic understanding of of what a Southern Baptist is. So I want to share about that for just a few moments. Southern Baptists are a group of churches who cooperate together to do worldwide ministry beginning in whatever state you live in, beginning in that state, then in our country, and then uh, around the world. Southern Baptists, I'm going to use a, a little nomenclature, SBC from here on out, to signify the Southern Baptist Convention. That's the convention of churches that, uh, that meet around the world. Southern Baptists began in 1845, and as much as we don't like to admit it, as much as we don't like to talk about it, our association of churches began because of slavery that dominated the American life and the American politic at that time. I don't know if you even know the, how we started, but we started like this. Baptists were of one, of one stripe or one group up and down uh, the eastern seaboard. And Baptists in the north decided they didn't think it was right for us to send slaveholding missionaries. And so they said, we will no longer support slaveholding missionaries going to the mission field. And uh, Baptists in the South said, oh, no, you don't. We're going to send our slaveholding missionaries. And so the South divided itself from the North as far as Baptists were concerned. And they said, we're going to start our own group and we're going to send slaveholding missionaries. And so that's how we have Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists. Northern Baptists changed their name to American Baptists. In spite of our sinful beginnings, and, and I do believe there was, uh, I do believe it was a sinful understanding of uh, humanity that started us because we wanted to send slaveholding missionaries, God has used the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. We grew to be the largest evangelical grouping of churches. At one point, having over 16 million members who were part of our churches, around 50,000 different churches uh, in our country. The SBC, uh, from its beginning, loved God, and they believed his Bible. Now, we didn't always get it right. We didn't always practice it the way God would have wanted us to have practiced it. But we preached that uh, the good news of Jesus' kingdom from, from our inception. During the Civil Rights Movement, we got it wrong again. We opposed integration. But in 1995, we repented of our sin, confessed our wrong of racism, denouncing our stands both as uh, the beginning of Southern Baptist in slavery, the Jim Crow era, and then the civil rights movement. We confessed that we had been on the wrong side and, and we repented. Uh, just a little side note, this isn't even in my, in my uh, notes, but in, in around that time, the late 1990s, our church family went up to Mount Nebo. There was 80 of us that went, and we went up to Mount Nebo to seek forgiveness 
we told them you're representing, uh, you know, the African-American folks in our in our community. And we're here to ask you guys to forgive us for being on the wrong side of what was morally right back in those days. But our convention of churches uh, said we were wrong and uh, and we confessed that wrong. It wasn't the only moral wrong that we would get right. I mean, get wrong. Uh, We were wrong on the moral sin of abortion. We got that wrong, too. You may not know that because of who we are today. But in 1971, two years before Roe v. Wade, uh, we adopted a pro-abortion resolution as Southern Baptist churches. In other words, we thought abortion was a good thing. In 1979, St. Louis, the St. Louis Post took out a full-page ad or full-page something or another listing Southern, the Southern Baptist Convention among religious groups that affirm the right to abortion uh, right alongside the Unitarians and the Universalists. For a number of years, um, decades probably, Southern Baptists had been drifting as a group of churches. We had been drifting towards a view that rejected the authority of Scripture, rejected the truthfulness of the Word of God. But in 1979, the same year the SBC voted on a a pro-abortion resolution, a movement began within Southern Baptist life to restore uh, biblical authority as an anchor for our convention of churches that would unite us. Now, in the late 1970s, I was not a pastor. I had just begun to follow Jesus. And, uh, but uh, during the early 80s, uh, again, I'm not a pastor, but I'm following Jesus. I'm preparing uh, to be a pastor. The, uh, what happened in 1979 or 78 was that two men, a fellow by the name of uh, Paul uh, Paige Patterson and a judge named Paul Pressler, they sat down at some point in a restaurant talking about how do we stop the drift in Southern Baptist life towards uh, biblical irrelevancy, right? How do, we, how do we return our denomination back to biblical authority? And what they determined at this, at this luncheon, the two of them, was that there was only one way to do it. The Southern Baptist president, every year we meet together as Southern Baptists in what we call a, an annual convention. And at that convention, we elect a president. And that president had one power. And that one power that he had was he got to appoint what was called the Committee on Committees. And the Committee on Committee would then appoint all the other, uh, no, excuse me, they'd appointed several committees, but they would appoint what was called the Nominating Committee. And the Nominating Committee then would appoint all the boards of trustees for all the entities that Southern Baptists led. So, for instance, our seminaries, what we taught, where we taught whether the Bible was true or not. And, and so uh, Pressler and Patterson determined that if we have elected a president who is committed to biblical authority, who would appoint a committee on committees who is committed to biblical authority, who in turn would appoint a nominating committee, you get the picture right on down the, road, on down the line, that we could eventually change Southern Baptists. So in 1979, the first president was elected who had this conviction. His name was Adrian Rogers. He's a good friend of Billy Rickman's. And uh, uh, Billy, Billy loves Adrian Rogers. He's, he's, uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord. But in 1979, uh, Adrian was elect, elected as the first president of our convention who had this commitment. After him followed Bailey. He only served one year. Normally he served two years. Bailey Smith served two years. Jimmy Draper, Charles Stanley. Uh, his second term, Charles Stanley's second term as our president, 
everything kind of came to a head. Just to give you some perspective, an annual meeting would have somewhere between 10 and 20,000, most messengers from churches around the country. Uh, Today, it's less than 10,000. Most of our annual meetings are less than 10,000 people. But at this particular meeting, meeting there in, I think it was in Dallas, there was 45,000 messengers at that meeting. It was kind of like at a, at a pivotal point to see which way Southern Baptists would go. I was at that meeting. I don't know. I, I didn't bother to look up the year. I don't know if I was there just from the church that I was a part of or if I was there from us, but I was there at that, at that particular meeting. And Dr. Stanley won a second term. Uh, it was very contentious. It was extremely contentious. But, but that was sort of the, the, the turning point for our, for our denomination. Um, but let's back up a little bit. That's, that's mid-1980s. By 1980, things were beginning to change. We were, at this point now, beginning to adopt pro-life resolutions. By 1984, our pro-life stand as Southern Baptists was firmly in place. Now, the world has greatly changed since those days, and so has Southern Baptists. Um, as a group of churches working together, we are, as a denomination, thur- thoroughly committed to biblical truth and to biblical authority. In fact, I think we're the only mainline denomination that has actually managed to turn around from a drift away from biblical authority back to biblical uh, authority. Today, we, we hold to biblical truth. Now, that doesn't mean we still don't struggle over what that biblical truth means. For instance, in Southern Baptist life for the last decade, I'd say we've kind of had this internal struggle over uh, what the Bible teaches about salvation. So we have a group of folks in, in our convention that believe that, that God uh, saves us in response to faith. We have another group in our convention that says, no, God saves us and we exercise faith as a revelation of the fact that God has saved us. So this has become sort of contentious in our Southern Baptist uh, um, grouping of churches. We have other issues that are contentious. For instance, uh, the Southern Baptists are 85% Caucasian European whites, right? Uh, that doesn't reflect the world that we're in. It doesn't reflect even the country we're in uh, anymore. So what should we do about that? Or should we do anything about that? Should we care about that? Should we work for more diversity? Well, that in itself has been, has been somewhat divisive for us as a, as a denomination. If you've kept up with the Southern Baptist Convention, you'll know that a few weeks ago we had our 2023 annual meeting. And it was a little bit contentious at uh, that meeting. And uh, what it was contentious was, was the fact that um, some pastors, some very influential pastors, were saying that the Bible teaches that there are no role distinctions between men and women. There are no, God doesn't, God doesn't make any role distinctions. So therefore, within the church, men and women can both be lead pastors, can both be elders within a local church. Rick Warren, you'll probably know the name. I have tremendous respect for Rick Warren. He, he wrote The Purpose Driven Life that greatly affected me as a young pastor. He wrote The Purpose Driven, that's the Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church first. Then he wrote the, the Purpose Driven Life, which I found to be an incredibly helpful book for young Christians. Uh, but he changed his mind on whether women can be pastors 
lead teaching pastors in a church. He changed his mind on that. And uh, so he has women pastors, a lead woman pastor at his church. There are some other churches that have lead women pastors uh, in their local church. And so Southern Baptists have long believed that there were role distinctions, that the Bible does speak of role distinctions between men and women within the body of Christ and even within the family, or I should say within the family and even in the body uh, of Christ. And uh, so Southern Baptists have long held to that. And during this annual meeting, the Southern Baptist Convention removed Rick Warren and Saddleback Church from friendly cooperation within our denomination. They removed him. They said, you, you, we're not going to consider you Southern Baptists anymore. And of course, it was, you know, Rick Warren was there. He was speaking. Others were speaking. They removed a couple of churches for the same reason. And, and I remember at the time thinking, I need to talk to us about this subject. I, I need to come back and talk to us about this subject of, of men and women pastors, more specifically roles for men and women. Are there differences? Does God... It, or, or are there no differences in roles between men and women? And I said, man, I need to talk to us about that. And so I was planning on speaking to that. And about the same time, I got a text from an acquaintance friend of mine who lives up in, in uh, um, Philadelphia. I mean, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania somewhere. And she wrote me just a short text. And this is what she said. She said, just saw that Southern Baptists banned women pastors. The Methodist church is splitting. Is this what Jesus would want. So uh, I, I found that to be confirmation that I should speak on this subject. And so I've been planning to talk on this subject uh, for a while. And I'm calling today's, my, I'm calling my talk today, um, uh, Should Women Serve as Pastors? And I'm going to call this a biblical perspective. So some of this I probably should save for my message, but I'm, for, for the actual teaching time, but I, I'm, I'm going to go with it now. So let me acknowledge a couple of things, uh, and you can just be mulling over this as we continue to worship and all, but, but let, me, let me just share a couple of things with you. This is a controversial subject. It's controversial among us as evangelical Christians. And if you don't know what that means, an evangelical Christian is someone who believes the evangel, he believes the good news. And some of the things that are associated with that are we believe in, in biblical authority. So this has become somewhat controversial, uh, a subject among those of us who hold to the good news of the kingdom of Jesus and hold to biblical authority. And, and everyone, it's an emotional issue, and everyone thinks that their position is the most biblical. So my desire today is not going to be to, to generate heat, you know, to make you feel emotional. I just simply desire today to, to pour some light on this subject. And I want to say probably when I'm finished this morning, not all of you will agree with me. I know coming in here this morning, some of you don't agree with me because, because we've talked. And, and even where I'm going to come out, uh, some of you that will agree with where I'm going to come out won't agree with some of the things that I'm probably going to say this morning. So, but, uh, but this has been a hallmark of my life, and I'd like to share it with you again this morning. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we need to be disagreeable, right? Just because we disagree doesn't mean that we don't need to love one another and respond in love to all of these things. So my goal this morning is going to appeal to our thinking. It's going to appeal to our mind using the word of God. And I am hopefully going to present a cogent and clear and compelling case for what I believe the Bible teaches. And again, I understand that 
We all, we all wish things would be the way we want them to be. Wouldn't you agree with that? I don't care what subject we're talking about. We all just wish it would be the way I want it to be, right? Because we think we're right. Uh, but here's, here's the deal, everyone. It's not what I think that matters. It's not what you think that matters. What matters is what does God think? What does God say? Now, now, granted, we all need to agree that that's the issue. Hopefully, we're all coming at this wanting to say, yes, God, I want, we want to know what is, what is your mind on this? Not what is my thoughts. What, are you, what is your mind on this? And, uh, and so hopefully this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to the Word of God. Again, maybe when I'm done, you, you may not agree with me. Maybe you may not be convinced. Uh, but I do hope this. I do hope that when I'm done this morning, we, we, you'll be able to see, okay, I understand why folks hold to a role distinction between men and women. I, I want to show you why biblically, I believe that God has given men and women different roles in life. And specifically that God has given men the role of leadership, both in the family and the church. And to women, he's given the role of supporting that leadership. I hope to show you that I don't believe this has been changed with the new covenant and, uh, and it's how I think we should live out today. So the notes on the back of your bulletin, if you use them, they're going to be somewhat scanty. I, there's a lot of information. I'm going to give you a lot of verses. So if you're taking notes with your, with your notebook, you'll probably appreciate that more. But if you just use your bulletin just to help you listen, that'll be fine. So let me begin with, first of all, a few overarching guiding biblical principles and definitions so that, so we got some of this groundwork, you know, uh, laid for us as we look at the scriptures itself. So the first, first thing I'd like to, um, the first overarching principle or guiding biblical principle I want to mention is this, that all of us fall into two categories. We are either uh, boys and girls, uh, men or women or male or female. And since the beginning of history, that's how it's been. Biology and science tell us this. Uh, but for us, there's something more conclusive than that, if you can imagine. And that would be the Word of God. The Word of God says at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 127, that God created us in the beginning, male and female. Now, I don't mean to imply that some people have not struggled with feelings of gender dysphoria throughout history. That has been true, and is still true today. But, but that doesn't mitigate the fact that God created us male or female. Number two principle, overarching guiding principle. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches that there is an equality of worth in being male and female. For instance, the Bible says that God made us both male and female in his image. Both sexes, both genders are made in God's image. I said this before, and some of you strongly disagreed with me, but I, I still maintain and believe that our maleness and our femaleness flow from the person of God. Your femaleness and my maleness are both expressions uh, that come from who God is. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say this. I, I give you that, right? But it just seems such a logical outgrowth that both of us being made in his image, that what makes us female and what makes us male would flow from who he is. 
In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, there is neither male nor female. He talks about Jew or Greek, uh, slave or free. He, he says that in Jesus, we're all one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul is not saying that the new covenant obliterates our gender distinctives. He's saying that our differences, as profound as they are, and as and just as they were then and they are now, Paul's point is that we are equal before God in our relationship with God. Maleness doesn't make us better than femaleness. Femaleness doesn't make you more valuable to God or more loved by God than maleness. We are equal before God in his love for us and how he values us, whether we are men or women, male or female. Third, submission or roles of leadership do not make us inferior to others, or they do not make us better than others. I remind us this morning that Jesus is God. God is one, yet three distinct persons. Jesus, who is equal with God the Father, often said things like this, The Father is greater than I. John chapter 14, verse 28. He said, I constantly do what the Father wants me to do. He prayed in that hour in Gethsemane. He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But if not, let your will be done. Implying that the Father's will took precedent over his. Some folks argue that in his humanity, Jesus submitted to the Father But in his divinity, he did not submit to God the Father. Because to be submitted to someone is to mean that you're not of equal worth. I very much disagree with that conclusion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 25, Paul is talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, he, he then makes this statement. He says, he, speaking about Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Talking about Jesus. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to the Messiah, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. It seems pretty clear in that passage to me that that Paul is saying that Jesus submits himself to the Father, and not just in his humanity, but in his deity, because we're talking about him having been resurrected, uh, glorified self. And, and, and so it seems from this passage to clearly say that Jesus in his divinity is always going to be submitted to the Father. All right. And I might add, and this is anecdotal, I'm not going to try to prove this, but I am going to tell you that as you read through your New Testament, I think you will find that it is, it is anecdotally clear that the Holy Spirit is submitted to the Father and to Jesus. Jesus said, he will, speaking about the Holy Spirit, he will only teach that which he's heard that, that I've said, right? So I, that's an anecdotal statement, but I, but I would say the Holy Spirit is submitted to both the Father and the Son. Now, here's my point, and please don't miss it. All three persons of God are equal in nature. They're equal in essence. And yet there is a, there is a submission order within the Godhead. 
And, and so if Jesus is co-equal with the Father, and yet he's submitted to the Father, the implication is that submission and leadership, they do not make us inferior or greater uh, or of more value than someone else. Did you follow my logic there? I think that's biblically uh, pretty clear. Uh, and finally, so this is just preliminary stuff. Finally, let me define some terms for us. I'm going to define complementarianism and egalitarianism because I'm going to be using those terms this morning. And so I want you to know what they mean so we're on the same page. Complementarianism is the teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement to complete each other. This complementarianism extends to different roles that God has assigned to us as men and women within the home and within the church. And these roles promote spiritual health and flourishing both for men and women. And I'm going to try to show that biblically to you. Egalitarianism in its broadest sense means that all people are created of equal worth, something that we all agree with uh, as I've already noted. Let me just, here's just a side note. This isn't in my notes, but if we go back in history, I think it was John Locke and some of, some of those early, you know, um, enlightenment thinkers, they were the ones that were come along, coming along and saying, you know, kings are not, they're, they're not of more value. All of us in humanity are of equal value to God, whether you're a king or whether you're a serf, right? Whether you're a, a, a lord or whether you're a servant. So, so they were promoting this egalitarianism, and indeed, we should all agree with that egalitarianism. But for our discussion today, egalitarianism, egalitarianism means not just that we're equal in worth before God, but it means that there are no role distinctions between men and women, between male and female, in the family or in, uh, or in the church. Some egalitarians would, have said, would say there never was, there never were role distinctions between men and women. God never intended that to be. That is a result of the curse in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 when, when, when we rebelled against God. Part of the consequences of that are that men rule over women, but that's not exactly how God, that's not how God intended it at all. It's part of the curse. Others would say that though it wasn't part of the curse, God removed those role distinctions under the new covenant. When Jesus came along in Jesus, now there are no role distinctions between male and female. So when I'm talking about egalitarianism, I'm, I'm using it in that way. Everybody follow me there? That's, that's what I'm talking about when, I'm, when I use the word egalitarianism. Now, egalitarianism, as I just defined it, that, about the role distinctions within the body of Christ... That is that came about in the early 1980s. That was when it was first begun to be put forward that egalitarianism meant that there were now no role distinctions between men and women. So that doesn't make it wrong, but it does make it fairly new. Everybody follow that? Okay. So with the, with those foundational principles and, and some definitions, let me build a biblical case without apology for male leadership in the family and in pastoral ministry. And, and I hope to do that with principles rather than proof text, okay? Uh, so often our understanding of biblical truth is based on, we've got a verse over here that says what we think, we, we, it says what we think it means, right? And so we pull that verse out and we say, here, this makes my case, right? Or we point to this other verse and we said, this verse makes my case. I want to do something different. I want to build a case on, on a comprehensive case on biblical, on biblical 
principles, a comprehensive overarching case from scripture, um, using it as, as a whole, both the Old and the New Testament. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe this to be biblically true. And, uh, and then I'm going to share with you why I think it's important, and then we'll give us two applications. So that's the plan, all right? So the first, the first overarching principle that I want to point to is the complementary nature of our creation. The reason why I believe we have role distinctions in life that are uh, perpetual, that continue, that didn't end with the new covenant, and that have been from the beginning, is the complementary nature of our creation. If we go back to the very beginning, we see that God made us male and female. He made us in his image. And I agree with the Galatarians, and we'll say this a number of times, we are all created equal in worth before God. But nonetheless, God created us different. We are not the same men and women. Our biology is complementary. It's not egalitarian. It's the reason why two men and two women can't have children. But, but our differences are not merely just physical, and we could go on and on and on for these differences, but let me just, some of them are physical, but they also, uh, they have ramifications in just the realm of how we respond to things and how we see things and how we do things. Um, so let me just point a few of those out. Women tend to communicate, and, and I didn't make these up. You can find these anywhere. They're, they're, all over, they're all over the internet. We know them to be true. Women tend to communicate more uh, effectively than us men. It's why you women can talk and talk and talk, and men grunt. Women have more connections between their left and right hemispheres in their brains than men. Consequently, women multitask better than, than men. In other words, I can only do one thing at a time and can do a whole bunch of things at a time. Men, on an average, uh, score five points higher on the IQ test than women. Men have a fight or flight reaction to stress. Women tend to tend or befriend. For this reason, men are better suited for combat. Women excel in language because of the connections in their brains. Men deny pain longer than women. Women cannot mentally rotate objects in their brain as well as men can. Men are more logical, analytical, and rational. Women are more intuitive, holistic, creative, and integrative. We're different creatures in so many ways. And some of you right now are thinking, but what about so-and-so? They didn't fit that mold. I'm not saying that we're all, we can all fit monolithically in a box. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is generally these things are true of being male and being female, of being men and being women. Only women can bear children, in spite what our culture is trying to tell us, which is so irrational. God has equipped you women specifically for this role. And it is a role that he did not give men. I mean, any way you look at it, guys, God made women to bear and to nurture, to deliver children. And it's not, it's not a role that he gave to, that he gave to men. Uh, and I'm not trying to say by any of this that men, that there's some kind of stark demarcation between us and men and women, or between us and, and women or men and women, so that everybody fits in, in a certain, I'm not trying to say that, right? Um, men should be tender. Men should help in, in family things. I, I can remember, you know, I, for those of you that didn't know, I have six children, 
And uh, man, I changed not as many diapers as Ann, but just as, about just as many diapers as Ann. I'm probably exaggerating. She'd say that's not true. But I changed, I changed hundreds, if not thousands of diapers. My father probably never changed a diaper, right? I, I don't think my father was right. I don't think being made, being made male and female means that we men can't do dishes, can't cook, can't change diapers, shouldn't care for the children. As Anne likes to say, it is not babysitting when you're watching your own uh, children. Um, Anne and I have long said in our relationship that I'm the woman in the relationship. And, and, and what we've meant by that is that I have a lot of the character traits that a woman might have in a relationship. I'm, I'm maybe more emotional. I want to talk about my feelings. And, and she's more like the guys. She just wants to grunt about her feelings, right? <laughs> and uh, so we've often said, now I can't say, we can't say that anymore, right? Because of how crazy our culture's gone. You can't say that because it doesn't mean the same thing. If I say I'm a woman now, you might really think I, I think I'm a woman, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not. So God has created us, male and female. And, and here's my point, right, with regard to roles. That he made us in, our, in, in how he made us, he made us with different roles. And, and my biblical point is anecdotal. This is not anecdotal. This is true. Those roles have not changed as far as women bearing children, as far as how God has made us male and female, the, the difference in our brains, the difference in how we react to, to pain and, and power, the strength of, of a male's body versus a female's body, etc. None of that's changed. So my point is, the creation itself at least points to or at least substantiates the idea that God has given us complementary roles. And those roles can include men leading and women supporting that lead. Here's my second overarching principle biblically as to why men uh, lead in the home and in the church and women support that. Number two would be the order of creation. Going back to the beginning again, back to the Genesis account. In the beginning, God created a man and he named him Adam. And he made him from the dust of the earth, right? And out of the elements of the ground. And then he breathed into Adam and he gave him life. So Genesis 2, 7 says, God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils and the man became a living being. And then God planted a garden paradise garden and he placed Adam in it and he gave him dominion over the garden and he said take care of it and take care of all the of all the world he told Adam to work it and to watch over it Uh, then he decided to make Adam a helper but before he did that he brought all the animals before Adam remember this and Adam is to name them and uh, what seems to be clear to most theologians is that God had Adam name all the animals because of his position of dominion, but also he had him name all the animals so that Adam would realize that no matter how good a dog was, that dog couldn't be Adam's helper. And of course, that would be more true of cats, right? So uh, God created a woman for Adam, not from the elements of the earth, but from part of Adam. He made, him, he made woman from part of Adam. And then he brings this creature that he's created to be Adam's helper. And he, he brings her to Adam and he says, name her. And Adam names her. And he calls her woman, which in the Hebrew means is Isha, which means taken out of. That's what he called her, taken out of. 
And she was taken out of, out of me. And God created a helper for man. Now here's my point. There seems to be a role of leadership or headship that stems logically from the very created order of men. Adam was created to lead. And then God said, hey, you need a helper. And he created a woman to help him lead. A woman to help him in what God had assigned it assigned to him. Now, egalitarians also point to creation to substantiate an egalitarian view of male and female roles. Egalitarians say God made us in his image, male and female, so therefore there's an equality, and so there should be an equality of roles. God never intended there to be role distinctions. Especially God never intended men to lead uh, in the family or in the, the church. I, I absolutely agree with egalitarians. I'm going to say this probably more times even this morning that egalitarians are absolutely right. We are of equal value and worth before God. But being made equal in worth does not mean the same at, or does not deny the possibility that God has given us a role, has given a role of leadership to Adam as his first creation, um, and, and to Eve as his second creation, a responsibility of supporting Adam in that leadership. Now, the New Testament is clear, everyone. Listen, listen to what I'm going to say. The New Testament is clear on how the created order of Adam and Eve speaks to these role distinctions. So listen to Paul in his letter to 1 Corinthians. And again, remember remember my introduction to this about us as Southern Baptists? Well, it's not just us as Southern Baptists. It's us as Bacon's Castle. We are a church committed to biblical authority. I mean, if we ever leave biblical authority, then we can just simply dismiss. I mean, I mean, we'll be just all over the board. We'll have no mooring to keep us anywhere, right? But we are a church that says the word of God. And again, I'm not begging the question because the question I'm trying to answer is what does the scripture actually teach? But it is the scripture that moors us to truth, right? And so here's what Paul says in the scripture to the church at Corinth. He says, uh, and he draws some conclusions. He says, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Paul says that the created order speaks to leadership. The egalitarians, when they look at that, they, they say that being made in the image of, of God neutralizes this created order argument of leadership. The problem with that is that in the New Testament, Paul points to that creative order and he speaks of leadership flowing from that very order. So, let me use some, let me use some logic here, some, some gifts of logical inference, if you would. And, and let's just assume for a moment that, and again, I, I know this is anecdotal and this is just me using logic, but if God had wanted to teach us that there, we, we were not going to have any role distinctions of leadership and, uh, in, in men and women, it seems to me that he would have done things very, very differently. So let me see if I can make my point. If he was trying to say there, there is no leader, there is no leader here in a home, or there is no leader within the body of Christ, it seems to me he would have created Adam and Eve simultaneously at the very same moment. He could have just as easily created Adam 
and created Eve, and there they are, corpse made out of the dust, and he could have breathed life into both Adam and Eve at the very same time, but he does not do that. He creates a man, and he gives priority to that man, and he puts that man in the garden, and he tells that man things to do, and then he shows the man that he needs help, right? Here's another thing. He, it seems to me if he was trying to say there are no rule distinctions and I'm not giving leadership to, to Adam, to men, he would have instructed them together instead of entrusting the moral design to Adam to then be explained to his wife. He would have presented her uh, as an independent associate, associate of his, presenting her instead, he presents her as one derived from Adam. She's derived from Adam as opposed to being just an independent associate that's going to be working alongside Adam in life. And number four, I would say God would have named them both instead of naming Adam and then giving Adam the responsibility of naming his wife. Now, none of, the, none of what I'm saying, and, and, and again, this should be obvious, but I'm going to be saying a lot of obvious things this morning. This does not mean that women were created to serve men. That is not what I'm saying. It does mean, it doesn't mean that women were, were created to be slaves of men. Remember, Eve was created to complement Adam, to work alongside Adam, to assist Adam in the job of managing the world. I think it clearly, however, speaks of his leadership role in, uh, in their, in their pairing together, illustrated by the creative order. Again, that may not be convincing to you, but uh, I think that's a pretty strong argument for, for men being created with the lead. Number three, the explicit instruction of headship. And this is where we go from the first two things that I've shared have, have tried to just kind of build from the, the whole teaching of Scripture. I'm, I'm going to go to some specific teaching of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament after after the new covenant has begun, right? But let's look at the explicit instruction of headship. And we're going to go back to that 1 Corinthians passage. I didn't start at the beginning. I'm going to start at the beginning. In verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11, listen to what Paul says. He's writing to the church. He says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ, or the Messiah, is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ, the Messiah. Now, Paul expressly says here that men are the head of women. And the word head there literally means head, everyone. It literally means like your head or an animal's head. So he's not speaking literally, right? He's not speaking that men are literally the head of a woman. They're not, he's not, he's using it metaphorically, right? So if we go back in ancient Greek and we look at how the word head is used metaphorically in ancient Greek, then this is what we find, that it's used like this. It's used to mean supreme. It's used to mean chief. It's used to mean master. It's used to mean lord. It speaks of leadership. It speaks of authority and responsibility. Now, egalitarians have to deal with this passage, right? So what do they say? Well, this, here's what they say. They say, this speaks of Eve, Adam as the, as the head of Eve. Adam is the source of Eve. Adam is the place from where Eve came. Sort of like the head of a river is this spring, right? The source of the river is this particular spring. So egalitarians say that um, 
What this means is that Adam is the source from which Eve came. The problem with that understanding is that Paul says the created order means more than that. Women were created for the sake of men. I read that a minute to, I read that a minute ago to you. And I'm assuming meaning to assist men, men were not created to assist women in what God had called them to. Now, I was tempted to make that more palatable and say, Adam, Eve was created to assist Adam, right? Adam was not uh, created to assist Eve. But I chose not to do that because Paul is universalizing that. So what Paul says is that men were not created to assist women. Women were created to assist men in, in what God had called them and them together to do, but God had called specifically Adam to do. Another reason egalitarians are not right on this passage, and this one is definitely more substantial than what I just said, I think anyway. Another reason is that Paul says that God is the head of Jesus. So using the reasoning of the egalitarians, when we say Adam is the source from which Eve came, well, you'd have to take that same thing and apply it over to Jesus and God, right? And so we'd have to say Jesus or God is the source from which Jesus came. Now, folks, listen, the church rejected that. It's almost at its inception very early. It rejected Arianism. Arianism said that God sourced Jesus. God created Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses today uh, commit the same Arian mistake, I believe. They don't rightly understand who Jesus is. And they say God created Jesus or God sourced Jesus. But uh, but we know that God did not source Jesus. God did not create Jesus. Jesus is God, right? And so that there that understanding, if you're going to apply it one way, you got to apply it both ways. It definitely doesn't work to say that God created Jesus. Everybody following me? And so therefore, source has to mean probably what it means in classical Greek: leadership, authority. Uh, or responsibility of leadership. So the question that arises from, from this would be, what areas are women to submit to the headship of men? And what areas should that be? Now, some people would say, I'm sure, they would say women should submit to men in every area of life. In the Let me take the business world as, as just a, a separate thing. In the business world, women should never, they should always be submitted to uh, men. And uh, some of you may even argue that you you would think that, right? But the problem is, it's not what you think, right? It's what does God say? It's what does the Word of God say? And the Word of God really, and some of y'all, if y'all can prove me wrong on this, I mean, I'd love to hear it afterwards, right? I don't think we find anywhere where in the world, in commerce, women are submit to men. However, there are two explicit areas where it says that men are to lead and women are to support that leadership. And that would be in the home and that would be in the church. So let's look at those two areas. The first one, male leadership in the home. I think this is even more important. I think the leadership in the church stems from this one. But I think this is male leadership in the home. And, and I think the, the weightiest passage in the New Testament after the installing of the new covenant uh, would be what the scripture teaches about the role of the husband and father uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4. You'll know it well. Wives, submit to your husbands, Ephesians 5.22, as in the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. 
And again, uh, there's that idea of source. Is it talking about source or is it talking about leadership? He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. And again, I, I, I don't mean to be just dismissive, but if we believe in biblical authority, it's really hard to dismiss this passage, and it's really hard to reinterpret it, in my opinion. Now, I do believe the fall of men definitely marred what God intended. Men were to be servant leaders. We Guys, listen, we were to be servant leaders in our home, laying down our lives for our wives and our children, leading them to love God sacrificing ourselves, giving up ourselves for them in the same way that Jesus gave himself up for us. When God called men to lead, that was the kind of leadership that he wanted from us. Instead, because of our broken sinfulness, many men have been authoritarian. They've been cruel. They've been selfish, abusing their families. And even when they're not abusive, way too many of us men have been inattentive in our homes and negligent in our homes and somehow thinking that everything in my family revolves around them serving me because I have the lead. Because of men's greater physical size and strength, abuse of our leadership roles, certain rights that women should have been given from the very beginning as our partners in life and as 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 co as co-equal before God with us, right? We've denied our partners rights that they should have had. We denied women the rights to vote throughout much of history. We considered our leadership to be autocratic. We didn't think women had anything to contribute. How wrong we were. We denied them equal pay for equal work. We discriminated against them in many of life's Areas We didn't protect them from sexual intimidation and unwarranted advances from some men who thought that because of their stronger strength and because of their misunderstanding of what it meant to be a leader, that they were entitled to such things. To be the servant leader does not mean we have the right to be despots or oppressors. But in spite of our failures as leaders, the Bible is really clear. He's given the husband, the father, the lead in the home. Here's just a sampling of Bible teaching. Titus 2, train the younger women to be subject to their husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1 and following. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, for this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I've made the case um, that I haven't made the case. I, I've, I've proclaimed what I believe, that our maleness and femaleness both find their origin in the person of God. Okay, So why does God, if both maleness and femaleness come from the person of God, right? why does God refer to himself as father? Why, why is his leadership male? Why is it considered male? Why does he choose to reveal himself to us with a masculine identity? I think it's because God has posited leadership in masculinity. And as God, he's the sovereign king. He's the sovereign leader. He's the creator. And that's why he's chosen fatherhood uh, for a revelation of who he is because he is our lead. He chose masculinity for Jesus in the incarnation because of the leadership that is associated with the creation of men. 
One more time. God didn't create men to be authoritarian, selfish despots over their family or over women in general. He chose men and made them so that they could and would lay down their lives and give their lives in leadership and defense and service and blessing of their families. Unfortunately, the fall has made us selfish. The fall has made us, it's broke us. And so we men have not always been what God wanted us to be. Egalitarians point to Ephesians 5.21, where it says, submit to one another before it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And they say, see, that overrules the rest of it. You know, that we're just mutually submit to one another. Hey, listen, I agree. There should be mutual submission between us as, as husbands and wives, as men and women. There should be a mutual submission. But mutual submission cannot erase what the Bible says about the headship of men in the family and and in the church. The roles of Jesus and his church are not reversible. And in the same way, I don't believe the roles of husband and wives and uh, men and women are reversible. Let me move on to male leadership in the church. And this is why Southern Baptists have taken a stand on, on this. We, we believe this to be the, the, the best and more conclusive teaching of Scripture that, uh, that God has appointed men to lead in the church, even as he has appointed men to lead in the home. When Paul is writing Timothy about leadership in the church, he said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. He then goes on to defend the statement by pointing to the creative order of men and women and the fall of Adam and Eve. When uh, Timothy is asked to pick overseers or pastors for the church. He's to pick men. There is no mention of women. Uh, the overseers, the pastors, the elders of the church are to be men, not because they're better than men, women, but are smarter than women, but simply because God created us differently and assigned to men the role of leadership in the, tr- in the home and then in, by extension into the church. Egalitarians seek to understand the passages like the one I just re- read to you. They say the specific, that was a specific problem in a specific church. Women in that culture were usurping authority and they were, they were actually running everything. And so Paul is saying women are not to run everything. It's to be, it's to be a mutual submission. And I guess that's possible that, I mean, N.T. Wright and others have tried to make that case. And these are great, these are great New Testament scholars. They've tried to make that case. But honestly, beloved, it seems to me it's a forced case on the text. And, um, and the whole tenor of the Bible speaks of men leading in the church. And actually what Paul is challenging in this very passage is women finding fault and seeking to usurp authority over men in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2 through 5, Paul says to the pastor, the pastor must be blameless. Listen to this. And rule his household well. Because if he can't rule his house, he can't take charge or he can't take care of the church of God. And so what that shows us is that the church was an extension of the home. That the church leadership was the extension of, of the father's leadership in the home it, it, trans, it transmits over to the church as a family as well. Men were to lead in the church. When Jesus picked his 12 disciples, he picked 12 men. Now you say, you say, well, that's because he just couldn't go with women back then because of the culture, etc. Listen, beloved, Jesus was extremely unconventional. 
And he elevated women to all sorts of places of responsibility. If you've been watching The Chosen, and I believe they're right, part of his entourage is Mary, and I don't know about some of those other women, but there's obvious there were women that traveled with Jesus all the time. He, no one did more in history to elevate women than did our Savior, the Lord Jesus, okay? But notice this, when it came to picking leadership in his kingdom, he picked male leadership. Now, all this being said, there is a wide spectrum and a kaleidoscope of ways that all men and women can minister and serve. And uh, women were always an integral part of Jesus' ministry and the growth of the church. They served the church in so many ways. It's clear, for instance, that women were deaconesses in the church. Uh, The word deaconess simply meant servant, right? And it talks about the deaconess Phoebe. And, you know, if we, if we put back our thought that women can't be deacons in the church or deaconesses in the church, then we, we change the word. But it's the same word used other places that we translate deacon, right? And, and so we see, you know, uh, we see women serving in this deaconess servant role within the church. We, we see, we, we at our church say that the biblical deacon is the equivalent of what we call a ministry leader today. Phoebe was a deaconess. She brought the letter of, uh, of Romans to the church at Rome. And most people believe that it's reasonable to believe that she may have been the one that read the letter to the church. And she may have even answered questions from Paul about what he meant in the letter. Because if they were anything like us, they got questions on Romans, right? Especially Romans 9. So uh, they would have asked questions. Uh, this is where some of you may not agree with me, but women can preach and teach and pray. They, there are instructions in our New Testament for women praying when the church is gathered for worship. Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that what they were seeing and experiencing in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell upon them and 120 men and women went out in the streets and began to glorify God in languages that they did not know, right? And people were saying, man, we're hearing them speak in our languages. And you remember what Peter said? He said, brothers, he said, fellow Jews, listen to me. What you're hearing now is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And in Joel chapter 2, it says, this is the promise that Joel made, that our sons and our daughters would prophesy. And you know the word prophesy there is the Greek word caruso, which is often translated to preach. Now, by the way, listen to me, everyone. This is why Rick Warren changed his mind. If you go out and listen to him, why he changed his mind and believe that women uh, should be pastors in, in churches. He, he said it was because of this verse, because in, in, with this coming of the new covenant, women would be carousoing. They would be preaching. They would be prophesying. Um, I agree with Rick Warren. I agree with others that that women can preach and teach and evangelize and all of that, right? But just because our daughters can preach and prophesy doesn't mean that they should serve as overseers and pastors and elders in the church. I do not agree with Rick. In the book, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 9, we read that Philip had four daughters, and all of them were prophets or prophetesses. They were all preaching. They were all prophesying. And they were women, right? Throughout the millennia, women have been so greatly used of God, it's hard to imagine where the church would be without them. Where would we be without women like Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon 
and Ann Judson, and Corrie ten Boone, and Mary Bethune, Elizabeth Elliot, Gladys Aldwood, Mother Teresa, Harriet Tubman. Where would we be if the body of Christ had not had these courageous, godly women who at times when men were unwilling have picked up areas that men should have been carrying in leadership and they have, they have done it. Where would the church be without women? 52% of the church today is, is female. And you say, well, that's not much. 48, 52, that's about 50, 50. Yeah, but those numbers aren't exactly, they don't exactly paint the whole picture. Pew Research did, did a, a study of the church here in America, and what they found was that uh, women are 53% to 46% more likely to attend a weekly gathering of the body of Christ. 61% versus 51% of men uh, pray daily. Uh, 68% of women say their faith in Jesus is super important to them, where only 61% of men said that. And again, there's not a great disparity there, but I do want you to notice that it's the women who are always on the winning side of where we ought to be, right? Or the right side of where we ought to be. And this is not a new trend. In the Gospels, who were the last people at the cross? Women. Who were the first people at the grave? Women. So research has shown us that critical to the early church were women. Critical to the early church. And, um, and in fact, some people believe that most of the Christian communities in those early days were majority female. There's nothing wrong. And this, some of you are going to disagree with me. Okay, There's nothing wrong with women preaching and teaching and giving Bible studies and doing evangelism. But leadership of the local church is entrusted to pastors and elders overseers who are men. This is not about, I said again, this is not about the value of women to the kingdom. This is not about women's ability as some women are so much more gifted than so many of us men, right? Your abilities far surpass us. Women can serve in so many ways, but God has chosen, God has decided that men lead in their homes and men lead in the local church. So why is this important? I'm almost done, so hang in there with me. I'm almost done. Why is this important? I, I wrote down one reason. Because I believe Father knows best. Remember that show? Father knows best, right? Well, they weren't right. Father didn't always know best. Father often got it wrong. But our Heavenly Father never gets it wrong. And our Father knows best. And as a follower of Jesus, I know that flourishing always lies in the path of obedience to God. And it seems pretty clear that biblically God has ordained this path of male leadership and, and female support of that leadership. And even if I didn't convince you, even if I didn't convince you this morning that that's true, uh, can we all agree with this, that the path of flourishing always lies, the path of spiritual prosperity always lies in obedience to God? Would we all agree with that? So that's what we need to find out. God, what, where is this path of obedience? And I'm convinced this morning that the path of flourishing and the path of spiritual prosperity lies in us recognizing these roles that God has given us as, as men 
and women. And so this is an important topic to the flourishing of your individual family, and it's an important topic to the flourishing of your church family. So it brings me to my application. I have two applications, one for us men and one for women. The application for us is really simple, and you can probably guess it. Guess it. Here, here's my application for us men. Men, be spiritual leaders in your home. If God has indeed said, I'm investing in you the leadership of your family, I'm making you the servant leader, and you're going to be the one responsible, then men, let me tell you something. Lead your family by example, by service, by love, by sacrifice, by surrender. I'm not talking about you being an autocrat. I'm not talking about you being a dictator. I'm not talking about you using your family for your own ends. I'm talking about you laying down your life for your wife and for your children. I, listen, I confess, it's hard to do that, especially when we're not in a good place with God. When we're not in a good place with God, it's really hard uh, to do that. But men, that's the application. Lay down your life for your family. And I would say this, and God's going to call and he's going to equip some of you men to lead our church family. And, and as he does call you to that, know this, you got to lay down your life for your church family. You lay down your life and your time and your sacrifice. And, 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 you know, it's not a position. It's not a title. It's about laying down your life for the well-being of your church family. That's the application for us men today. Ladies, the application for you, it's going to be obvious, but it'd be this. Be a spiritual helper to your husband and to your church family leadership by laying down your life in, in serving and supporting your family alongside of your husband. Support his example by serving and loving and sacrificing and surrendering yourself do not be a doormat. God has not called you to be a doormat. God has not called you not to speak into his life. He created Eve out of the side of Adam so that she could be a helper to him. Helper doesn't mean she's not his slave. He didn't create Eve to be a slave for Adam. He created Eve to be a helper for Adam. So what does a helper do? A helper comes along and when she sees or he sees whoever he's helping making a big mistake, he doesn't keep his mouth shut. He speaks up. He speaks up. Recognizing his role or her role as a helper, he speaks up and he speaks the truth. Listen, so ladies, speak the truth. God's called you to that. Challenge your husband. Challenge his leadership. I mean, I don't mean challenge it in a, in a, in a bad way, like always going against him. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about challenge him to do more. Challenge him to be more. Correct him when it needs be. Respect him. Support him. Let him know you're standing right there in his leadership. If he drops the ball spiritually, and I see this all the time, and I hear it all the time. I heard it this week. I heard it from a a dear sister, she let me read something that she'd written down, and she was talking about her husband wasn't stepping up. Now, I need to say, since then, God's done a great miracle in that family, and that husband's stepping up. But, but you know, when her husband wasn't stepping up, I read, she was talking about, I, I want to be there to, I want to lead my, my children. I, I want to, so, so ladies, what I'm saying is, hey, if we're dropping the ball, I mean, it doesn't give you the right to drop the ball. You, you, you be that helper. You, you fill in the gaps when we're dropping the ball and we're not doing what we ought to, when we ought to be doing. There was a season in my life when I wasn't doing well with God and I wasn't leading my family. I wasn't leading my family. 
And I can remember, I've told you this story before, but I can remember coming down the stairs. I'm going to get emotional. I can remember coming down the stairs and going off to work, coming here and be pastor, right? Coming down the stairs and watching my wife have a quiet time with uh, our, our devotions with my children. And, and, and I'm walking out the door and I'm not participating in that. You see, when I was, when I was dropping the ball, Ann wasn't dropping the ball. And so, so ladies, you know, uh, you, need, you need to get in there and help and support and be a part of what God is doing in your family. Be that support role, not, not, the, not the slave. Be that support role to your husband. Pray for him. Stand with him. Challenge him. Speak into his life, you know, all of that. Lay down your life for the role that God has given you as well. That's my biblical argument. I hope it, at least you can see from the SBC's perspective, from our church's perspective, what's been our church's perspective, from my perspective, why the Scripture teaches male leadership still today. And I started this this morning by reading you that little text I got from that friend lamenting the SBC banning women pastors. I'm going to end with my reply to her. This is what I wrote her back. I said, good afternoon. Actually, Southern Baptists simply reaffirm their biblical position that the office of pastor is to be filled by men. I know that today many disagree with this, considering it outdated, but for those who believe the Bible uh, is a revelation from God, it's hard to merely disregard or reinterpret what it says about our roles as men and women. It's the same reason the Methodists are dividing. Most Methodists in the world still maintain the Bible is true and authoritative. A majority of Methodists in our country don't hold to that truth anymore. So Methodists are dividing over the truthfulness of the Bible. Unfortunately, I, I think we'll see more and more pronounced divide between those who believe the Bible to be authoritative and those who do not. And again, let me, let me interject something. This is not in my notes. I don't mean to imply by what I'm saying here, reading to you, that egalitarians don't hold to biblical authority. So many of them do. Rick Warren does. I, I doubt Jesus appreciates this divide, I told her. But then everyone is ultimately responsible to him personally. So people are dividing from one another as they seek to be faithful to God. I end with this. Let's all seek to be faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, take my words, take these meditations, take these biblical arguments. And Lord, if they're correct and if they're true, then, then Lord, um, fix them upon our hearts. Lord, in a culture that's shifting all the time, and a culture that's denying so many things that you say in your word. Father, help us to be fixed, transfixed, riveted, if you would, to the word of God and its truthfulness. Lord, on this issue of, of our male and female roles in family and in the church, I pray, God, that you would lead us. I pray that you'd give us conviction on these things. And I pray that you would help us to flourish uh, in these as we seek to follow you. We pray this prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.